I mean, I really think about just my own personal path and career path. My education and philosophy is probably one of the most, if not the most important thing that I've, I've had in, in my career. And the, my ability to, um, I think, look at very complex things and organizations and distill from that the kind of the essential structure. And, you know, you really think about purpose and means in philosophy and being able to, to think and approach complex organizations and issues with that framework is, is probably one of my greatest strengths, actually. And it really helps in so many different ways to understand what's important, what's not, how different things structure and why, and what their relationships are, the hierarchy of things. Some things are more important than others. And, and how to deal with things that come up and come at you. <laughs> yep. Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of D.C. Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Welcome and thank you for listening. On today's show, I'm pleased to introduce Dan Matthews, who as of, as of the, the day this is released, January 20th, will be the former Public Building Commissioner for the GSA, Government Services Administration. Dan had served in this role for three and a half years under the Trump administration after a 22-year tenure as a staff member in Congress, much of the time on the House subcommittee overseeing GSA's activities. Dan was the son of a career Navy pilot and officer who traveled around the world. He was born in Italy and lived in the state of Washington until his high school years in Northern Virginia, and then on to Colorado and then Georgetown, where he graduated. He joined Congress right out of Georgetown, and except for a two-year stint with his brother's furniture business with a because cons- was a construction congressional staffer. This background gave him perspective to take on his extensive role overseeing over 370 million square feet of government leased and owned space. He talks about GSA's origins, how the agency is the master lessee for most of the government agency's leases. We discuss the process of government space procurement and the balancing act he has among the client agencies, Congress, who approves the larger leases, and the GAO, who also has approval authority. He talks about the success of achieving his three top goals while in this role and some of the lessons learned along the way. So please enjoy this wide-ranging discussion with Dan Matthews. Welcome, Dan, to the podcast. Appreciate you joining me today. Thank you very much, John. It's great to be here. So, Dan, uh, tell us a little bit about your role and responsibilities as the Commissioner of Public Building Service at GSA. Well, thank you. It's a, it's a great position. So, the Public Building Service is part of the General Services Administration, which was created in 1949. So, after World War II, to centralize 
federal real estate and acquisition of so uh, of supply. So it's both real property and personal property. And we have a portfolio of about 370 million square feet. It's a few million square feet smaller uh, in the last three years, which has been good. Uh, we have about 5,500 federal employees in the public building service. And at any given moment, close to 30,000 contractors working on GSA projects or in our facilities, things like that. So it's a, it's a pretty big organization and about $12.5 billion a year runs through it. Is uh, this uh, just United States real estate? This doesn't include anything outside the United States, I assume. United States and territories. So we have facilities. In fact, we just wrapped up a, a build-a-suit lease courthouse in Saipan a little while ago. Uh, so that's a U.S. territory. And, uh, but 50 U.S. states and, and, and U.S. territories. Overseas, the State Department is basically GSA in foreign countries. And so the State Department helps arrange real estate solutions for federal agencies abroad. And you have no involvement with, with embassies of foreign governments in this country either. You don't get involved in any of that, right? Correct. With a notable exception is United Nations here in, in New York City. We actually I, I do the real estate for the U.S. Really? to the United Nations. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. So it has its own building there next to the, U, the U.N. building? or uh, There's actually a residence for the UN ambassador. And, and we oh, started, I didn't realize that. We sort of do okay. some of the work for the State Department there. Well, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. That's so we have our own director, but we also do a fair amount of work for agencies that may have their own real estate authorities, but for a variety of reasons, they, they turn to us to help them. Well, that's interesting. It's, it's pretty broad, actually. Let's turn back the clock here and uh, go back to your origins a little bit. I'd like to learn a little bit about where you grew up and what influences you had uh, in your early life. Sure. Well, probably the most significant factor was the fact that my father was a pilot in the Navy. So we moved around a lot. And I was born in Naples, Italy. Really? Yep. Born in in Napoli. Can't read my birth certificate. It's Italian, but I have a State Department form of uh, foreign birth. So I can read that one. So that's good. And we lived in Washington State where uh, there's a naval air station. My father flew out of for a long time when they were deployed in the Pacific, that was their home base. Lived in Hawaii for several years, California, ultimately Virginia. Fortunately, the Navy has a lot of, a lot of good postings compared to some of the other services. Was he a jet pilot? He was. He flew uh, uh, carriers. So, mm-hmm. no, he was on the uh, attack side and uh, electronic warfare side. So, A6s mm-hmm. and then... Also, EA-6Bs, which is the electronic warfare version of the A-6, which was uh, developed in the, in the Vietnam War. He was actually uh, the first CO of an operational squadron in Vietnam. And then after that, we uh, ended up in the Washington, D.C. area. So I actually we ended up in Northern Virginia when I was in sixth grade. Was he career military? Career military, retired as a captain uh-huh. in the D.C. area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, my son was a naval pilot as well. Oh, really? And yes, he flew uh, helicopters up until two years ago. Oh, uh, very exciting. Out of North Island, Coronado. Yep. Yes, so. uh, I had the, the great experience when I was working on the hill 
at one point in 2003 to go out to Coronado, North Island, and the USS Nimitz was um, doing their final qualifications before they shipped out to the Gulf and uh, got to fly out to the carrier for uh, two nights, three days while they're doing their final qualifications. And it was uh, a mind-boggling experience having grown up around Navy bases and planes as a kid. It's a different experience to be on the carrier when they're they're actually landing. Oh, yeah. When we landed, and it was on this thing they call the cod. It's like a Greyhound bus. Yes, yes. Um, And there's a a ramp that lowers in the back. And I walked out. The second I walked out, it's so noisy. Yeah. And this plane came screaming down on the deck and looked like the wing was going to take my head off. And then I noticed it it was a Prowler, an E-86B, the same plane. Yes. Dad flew. Cool. I couldn't wait to get back to uh, San Diego and call them on my cell phone. So I'm, I'm 10 times more impressed as I ever was. Uh, really well, you, incredible what they you, do. You had an experience similar to what I had, and, and probably this program started after you grew up, but I was able to, my son brought me on what's called a Tiger Cruise with on a carrier as well. And so I went from Pearl Harbor to San Diego on the carrier for six days. Oh, wow. And it was Very a spectacular spectacular experience. Two air shows over the Pacific. It was, it was amazing. Anyway, incredible. We can go on on that subject a long time. uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's good to hear that. So you traveled a lot as a child then quite a bit of different countries and stuff. What influences did that have on you growing up? What did you learn? Well, I think it it teaches you uh, to be flexible, number one. And also I think kind of taught me a, a love of travel and, and the world and different peoples and cultures and things like that. And it also just puts you in, in some pretty amazing places. Like I said, the Navy has some, some good postings, uh, a lot of uh, areas that have, have natural beauty outdoors. And so I think I developed an, early on in my life uh, a real love for the outdoors. And it's probably been one of the most significant influences in my life in so many different ways. It's, it's mm-hmm. If I have free time, it's where I, where I like to be. There's also just tremendous uh, life lessons you learn through things like that. So did your mother uh, have uh, challenges uh, managing all these moves and stuff, uh, <laughs> raising so, so, you know, like, like you would expect, also that time, right? Uh, my parents are in their 80s now. So, you know, things were, were, were different back then. The opportunities, I think, for 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 women are were clearly much different. And my mom talks about that all the time. You know, you'd be a teacher or a nurse, and she was a nurse. So between the two of them, you know, the notion of service and duty, it, you see it every day, and it seeps in in a million different ways as you're growing up. So I, I think uh, both of them and in, in, in their career paths had a like a really significant impact on me as a kid and what I wanted to do. Probably like every every child of a of a carrier pilot, you want to be a pilot when you grow up. Sure. Until, uh, you know, I was a sophomore in high school and realized, learned I was a little colorblind. And uh, oh, they don't have people okay. with red, green, colorblindness land planes on carriers. So that was out. Nope. <laughs> but yeah, between the two of them, they're great parents. Uh, they're both still alive, which is, is fabulous. They're in the area mm-hmm. and uh, a very significant influence on me. That's great. So public service meant something to you. Absolutely. perspective. So your mother must have been, was she in the, in the Navy as well as a, as a nurse? Or? No, civilian, civilian, civilian nursing. Civilian nurse. Um, okay. But, mm-hmm. uh, 
Yep, definitely uh, caring for others and you know, service to the community. Well, if you know a nurse, you'll you'll, you'll know what I mean. <laughs> of course, of course, they love they give back and they do it willingly and lovingly. Twelve hours so, a day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, so your high school, uh, where did you go there? To, you know. So we ended up in the DC area uh, by the time uh-huh. I got to high school. So I actually went to high school at Falls Church here in Northern sure. Virginia. It was a good experience, although at the time I developed a real love of the outdoors. And actually, one of one of my earliest memories was in Washington State, which is um, where we were stationed uh, for several years. Is that Brennington? Uh, Woodby Island. Oh, Woodby. Okay. Woodby Island in Puget Sound is the Naval Air sure. Station. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, you know, it's a, it's a gorgeous place when it's not raining, which is most of the time, but it's a beautiful place anyways. It's really one, one of my earliest memories was camping up at uh, Mount Baker in the Cascades. There's a beautiful lake there called Baker Lake. And we used to go up into those big mountains a lot. And I kind of turned sure. into a, a love of uh, mountains and hiking and then quickly evolved into climbing and mountain climbing and rock climbing. And that's kind of been my passion ever since. Mm-hmm. So, uh, while I went to high school here, I couldn't wait to get out because uh, not a whole lot of big cliffs in, in Falls Church. So, well, you can always go over to the to the Shenandoah, but you know, you certainly no mountains there of any scale. Certainly, <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> no, not when you're younger, anyways. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> you weren't big enough. So. You know, even with that passion for that, you decided to stay in, in Washington to go to college. So why did you decide to go to Georgetown? Well, actually, I didn't. I started, oh, really? the, University, I started at the University of Colorado as a geological oh, engineer. Okay. Oh, and, I uh, okay. Yeah, so I actually started off, you know, in a hard science program in Boulder, Colorado, which is uh-huh. uh, probably one of the best climbing destinations anywhere in the United States as well. So that wasn't such a bad thing. Work hard, but uh, you can also go being dangling from cliffs in 30 minutes from walking out of your dorm room. So that was a, a good combo for me. So that's actually where I started in, in, the, in the science area. My father's like a double engineer. So I think that also was something that it just seemed a natural progression. But, but at some point when I was there, I, I started to realize I'm going to learn an awful lot about science and math and physics, but not much about anything else because there just isn't time. You know, those are, those programs are pretty demanding. Uh, you don't have much time to fit in anything else. And I got interested in some of those other things. So I actually uh, had taken a, decided to take a semester off. And I had an internship, full-time internship on Capitol Hill for the Senate. This was back in the fall of 1985. It was a year a little bit like this year on Capitol Hill, minus the coronavirus. I think they were in session uh, basically right up to Christmas when they did the Graham-Rudman um, oh, right. Deficit right. Control Act mm-hmm. back then. So sure. it was a, a real exciting time to be working up there. And that gave me some time to think about what I wanted to do. And I thought, well, you know, I think I might change my major into uh, government. I was learning about history and uh, other things and thought I'd want to pursue that. I actually went back to Colorado for a semester. And uh, a professor I really trusted said, look, if you're serious about this, this is a great school for for engineering, for business. So if you're interested in government and philosophy, this probably isn't the place to be. They suggested that, you know, you should probably think about another school if, that's, if you're serious about this. And so I ultimately ended up applying at Georgetown and got in there and graduated from Georgetown with a degree 
in government and philosophy. So I actually have so a did you transfer of, your sophomore year or what, junior year? So actually it was my junior year. Yeah, so mm-hmm. two years at Georgetown. A great experience. Uh, it's probably the hardest decision I ever made though was leaving Colorado because of all the things <laughs> I like to do. You can do them there and it's hard to do them here. But in terms of education, what I was interested in and career path, it was the right choice, but, but a hard one. Pulled me away sure. from people and places that I love. Mm-hmm. You knew then, you, you had a feeling that you were going to aim towards government service then. Did you think about any, any military roles, even though you were colorblind? I mean, you could have been in the Army or the Marines or something like that. You couldn't fly. Was that not of interest to you? I did. And, and in fact, you know, I was thinking about Georgetown. It was pretty darn expensive, too. So, yeah. uh, so I looked into uh, uh, ROTC uh, and Army ROTC because I was actually told that they'd let you fly helicopters with um, a little bit of a color deficiency. And so I actually signed up for that. And, and plus, you know, again, the Georgetown's an expensive school. So I thought that was probably a good thing to do. I remember one point my father pulled me aside and he said, look, if you really want to be in the army, then go ahead and do ROTC. But he said, if you're doing this for the tuition, because you feel guilty about coming here, he said, don't let that influence your decision. Because in the military, it's a great thing but you really got to want it. And, and if you're doing it primarily for the money, then, then don't do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it, it was a great discussion. And so ultimately I decided, you know, two years of, of tuition probably wasn't worth six years of service. And so I, I opted out of that and um, ended up uh, after I graduated work on Capitol Hill. So when I got mm-hmm. started. Mm-hmm. So you knew then when you were finishing up there that you wanted to, Capitol Hill was where you wanted to aim. You had had the internship and it inspired you. Yeah, it did. It, uh, and also given what I was studying, right? My major was government, but probably what I really enjoyed the most was the philosophy part of it and mostly classical philosophy. And, and in philosophy, you really, you learn about ideas and the importance of ideas in the world, how they kind of shape and, and, and define events and, and, and activities that happen in the world at a really fundamental level. and one of the most important things, and you know, Aristotle talked about this, putting ideas into action is just really what human purpose is all about. It's one thing to have ideas just out there in a kind of an academic setting, but if they're not put into action uh, mm-hmm. towards the common good, then, you know, what, what good really is it? So kind of the whole notion of putting ideas into action through government service, particularly, you know, in a national level with the legislature, it, it really is where, where that takes place, right? That's where... Sure. Priorities of a nation are, are, are many in many respects decided, particularly if you think about what's really happening when you allocate the federal budget. It's, you're making priorities, choices, right? What's, what's important in the country, where you're trying to go and why and how you're going to get there, okay. well, you know, at, at that kind of strategic level. So, no, it made a lot of sense. And it's, it's what well, if you look at our founding fathers, I think you know, several of them were philosophers in their own way. Absolutely. I mean, coming up with the United States, the concept of the United States was a philosophy in itself. The whole concept that we of our country John is Locke. a philosophy. Well, absolutely. The Constitution is Lockean philosophy put into action. That's, what it, that's exactly what it is. And they were very well educated. They had classical liberal arts education, had science, but yeah. also philosophy. They understood how democracies, you know, democracy wasn't new, right? The Greeks had Ancient Greeks had democracy. The Romans had a had a republic. It just it didn't last. 
Right. And that's really the genius of the American experiment is figuring out how to break that cycle of government systems. And after democracy comes the tyranny, the tyrant. And that's really what they did is they installed a set of ground rules, the constitution, to try and break that natural cycle that led to the death of democracies. Time will tell if it works, but it's worked longer than any other democracy. You know, 200, what are we at? 240 years now, right? Um, yes. It's worked longer than, than anywhere else because of what they understood about history, about ideas, about governments, and why they succeed, why they fail, and truly uh, uh, amazing what they... What I'd they love do. to bring Thomas Jefferson and, and John Adams back today and have them read the papers and take a, <laughs> take a tour of through Congress and see what their opinions were of what's going on to the, in today's government. <laughs> yeah, be no. a fascinating experiment. I say it would be, but I don't think they'd be 100% surprised either. They designed a system that didn't depend on, you know, we think when you think about a, a monarchy, right? You'll have a good monarchy, a good government if you have a good king. You don't have a good king. You have a terrible government. They built a system that doesn't depend upon the actors being good or having the right well, for the most Rome, part. Rome only had a few good emperors, and one of them was Marcus Aurelius. And yeah. uh, his stoicism philosophy and his way of mm-hmm. looking at things. You know, if we had that in this government today, it would be a whole lot better in my view. But... <laughs> No, I think you're right. And, and, it's, and I think a lot of it comes back to, to education. I mean, I really think about just my own personal path and career path. My education and philosophy is probably one of the most, if not the most important thing that I've, I've had in, in my career. And the, my ability to, um, I think, look at very complex things and organizations and distill from that the kind of the essential structure and you know, you really think about purpose and means in philosophy and being able to, to think and approach complex organizations and issues with that framework is, is probably one of my greatest strengths, actually. And it really helps in so many different ways to understand what's important, what's not how different things structure and why and what their relationships are, the hierarchy of things. Some things are more important than others. And And how to deal with things that come up and come at you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What to let go and what, what what you shouldn't let go. Right. That's important to be able to distinguish between that. (laughs) Exactly. But we could go on on this one a long time because I'm, I'm a huge fan of a lot of different philosophies, but, Anyway, so your first job on Capitol Hill, what was it? Well, actually, my first job was at 15. But my first job on Capitol Hill was uh, you know, working for a member of Congress. And I actually handled uh, a variety of issues, including uh, transportation and infra- infrastructure issues. So it was really my first place where I started to uh, get involved with what would later be the uh, you know, public buildings and federal real estate. But uh, that was part of you know my so tell me how you got that how did you get that job did you just go up to the hill and start knocking on doors or or, uh were you recruited or what how did how'd you get that opportunity that's exactly what happened i tell you (laughs) it it was a wake-up call you know when you're in a school like georgetown 
yeah, you're constantly being told how special and wonderful you are and how the world revolves around you, blah, blah, blah. And then you get out. <laughs> then you got to go find a job. And guess what? You're not so special anymore. That, that was a bit of a, of a wake-up call. You know, you just think uh, jobs are going to be showing up. And no, it didn't work that way. So I, um, I literally, I remember just printing out at one point a stack of resumes going to the fifth floor of the Canon office building. And mm-hmm. you can tell from, the, from the, uh, the roster in front of every elevator, I was a you know, Republican at that point, which offices are Republican ones and which ones weren't. And because they were written in cursive at the time. And I'd just write down the, the room numbers and go from office to office to office and just perfect your cold call. You know, because you had to get past that front desk. And you know, ideally, you get in to see the chief of staff, but if not, maybe the legislative director or somebody. And if you, know, you, you go down in flames on that first one, well, you know, there's another, hall to, another office down the hall. <laughs> and then you'd walk downstairs to the next floor and just go around. And the goal was uh, get into the right, somebody who's making a decision and then try and get at least two names from that person if they don't have a job themselves that's available. Mm-hmm. You want to walk out with at least two names and then your network just grows. And I, there'll be plenty of dead ends, but if you're getting two or more names, it'll keep growing. Yeah, so it was just uh, wore off a lot of shoe leather. And the funny thing is some of the people I met while doing that, I'm still in touch with today. And they're in a variety of positions, you know, very high level positions in the government or the private sector now. It's really pretty funny. And that was, you know, gosh, what was I, 18 years old? Mm-hmm. Or no, at that point, I was probably 21, I guess, 20, 21, 22. As some of those, the people I met doing that, um, I've been, you know, working with ever since. Interesting thing about Washington, it's a big city, but it's a small town. Well, particularly in, in, in Capitol Hill and on, yep. in the government circle. So why Congress? Why not, you know, the eight, one of the agencies or, you know, or go on to graduate school or something like that? You know, you, you, there are a lot of options coming out of Georgetown. Yeah, there are. I think, you know, the interesting thing about Capitol Hill is it's very entrepreneurial. And as opposed to the executive branch, which is a much more of a, defined career path where you toil away for 15 years before you get to a, you know, a certain level. Capitol Hill, it's 535 small businesses and you'll get thrown into things that you're not prepared or qualified for pretty quickly. And it's sink or swim there. Again, very entrepreneurial. If, if you, you, you do well, you get noticed, you move up. If you don't, you're gone. And it's uh, the first time anybody's ever said that to me. <laughs> oh, really? Working for the federal government is entrepreneurial. <laughs> that's, that's mind-blowing to me. <laughs> yeah. Capitol Hill is, is, I guess it's technically the federal government, but uh, it doesn't operate like it by any means. You know, we, we discussed before uh, we went online here, uh, you know, all those jobs are at will. You, yeah. you know, your boss can walk in and one day say, you know what? This isn't working, folks. You're all gone. Pack your bags. You got 30 minutes. Wow. You're out of here. Wow. Uh, I, got, I got new people I'm bringing in. You know, that happens. It's the way it works. And uh, keeps people on their toes. And, but it's also, there's, you know, risk and, and reward. They tend to go together and opportunity. It's higher risk, but uh, pretty uh, significant opportunities too. So you kind of work, I mean, sometimes in situations like where they just passed this omnibus bill, you people work round the clock, literally, to get this stuff done. Is, is that a common 
I mean, you'll go yeah, well, sure. maybe weeks or so doing very little, and then all of a sudden you just, it's all in. Is that kind of the role yeah. of a congressional aide? I've told people that Capitol Hill is like a fire station. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's a lot of downtime, and then everyone's hair is on fire, and <laughs> it's an emergency, and, and you don't have enough people, and uh, it's a giant rush to, to get something done. And, and so it has a rhythm to it as well, that the fires are are predictable to some extent. And you have to be, have done a lot of groundwork to prepare things to be in the right position when it's the fire drill that your priorities get picked up and move across the finish line. So there's a, there's a art and a science to, to getting things through Capitol Hill. Talk about your career. So you, you started with one congressperson. So yeah. how did, and you stayed how long with that? That congressperson. Two years because he didn't win his, his uh, election. Oh, okay. He, um, he was from California. Uh, mm-hmm. Not too many Republicans from California, but back then there were, there were actually quite a few. And well, Ronald Reagan was president at that time, right? That's right. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I worked for a, a member of Congress from California. He had um, been a longstanding member of Congress in the minority, of course. Back then, the Republicans were in the minority in the House. And uh, but very well respected. Also, um, you know, kind of an old school member where, where kind of service and, and duty really meant something. Um, and that's just the way he was. Very high expectations. But unfortunately, uh, he actually uh, a rich guy from from uh, there was a redistricting that happened in 1990, and he got a new district and a, a multimillionaire from from Texas uh, thought, oh, it'd be nice to be a member of Congress and spent millions of dollars in a primary and, and actually unseated them in a new district. And then when that ended, I, I actually went and worked um, with my brother who had uh, was sort of a serial entrepreneur and he had opened a, a furniture business in North Carolina and I actually worked for him for a couple of years, expanding his business. So mm-hmm. I negotiated my first real estate deal. It was a warehouse. I still remember that. I think, uh, I think we, we ended up closing at like five, $5.35 a foot, but that was my first experience uh, in any sort of a real estate negotiation. We had a couple, several of those actually, because he was growing. That was a lease <coughs> that you negotiated? It was, was the lease. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. And uh, I, I actually negotiated a couple of different leases. This was actually for a warehouse operation, but then we had a retail, a couple of retail stores that he opened up. And so we had, we did those as well. But then, uh, so what would have been like two, two and a half years later, Republicans took over the House in 1995, 94 election, uh, but 1995 when the Congress started. And my old boss, my old legislative director in my previous office, became the chief of staff for a new member of Congress. And he, um, he asked me to come back. So, so I did. So that's, I went back to Washington and was a legislative director for, for that member of Congress, who ended up becoming the chairman of the uh, Public Building Subcommittee in 1995. So that's so I handled all the public building issues and all the transportation. That's how you learned what you're doing now, basically. That's where I really kind of sunk my teeth into those issues. He was, uh, you know, I, I was his person that handled all those issues, all the committee issues. And so that's where I, where I really got involved in, in the policy, all the authorizations for projects. You know, you start, it's a big learning experience, right? You, when you're a chairman of a subcommittee like that, you know, anyone involved in federal real estate state starts coming through the door and, you, you know, you start learning. 
It's, it's important. If you're going to do your job well, you, you need to understand it. And uh, so that's really where the education started. And it interested you, obviously. You must have yeah, again. It, it did. Actually, particularly coming as I was straight from sort of a small business experience where you know, we were more involved with real estate to some extent. And so, yeah, I had actually, it was really interesting. I loved it. It was fun. So you had, you negotiated two, two in, an industrial and a couple of retail leases. And, yep. and then eventually morphed to <laughs> leasing hundreds of millions of square feet in the government space. That's 180 million square feet yes. leases. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Quite good. a change. Yeah, it really change. is. Yeah. So what have you learned? Uh, how have you learned how about managing real estate portfolios? I mean, what, you know, it's one thing to learn it as a government, as a, uh, let's just say, uh, a congressional, from the congressional patient, mm-hmm. but how did you learn the, the nuts and bolts of doing it? Or did you just jump in, you know, as an observer and just learn on the job, basically, you know, what, how these people operate this stuff? Right. So I- so I was involved with federal real estate from Capitol Hill for a long time, right? Okay. Basically, 1995 up until 2017, right? So 20, 22 years. So you saw a lot of things. So it was a long time to learn. I tell actually a lot of people GSA, the committee Congress is, is like a board of directors to GSA. That's really sort of how they operate. They create the, the, the structure the playing field in which GSA and other federal agencies operate in the federal real estate world. It's really what they're, they're deciding, you know, even with, with capital investments, right? They have to authorize all the major capital investments. Right. So they're making decisions about where money goes. They're making decisions about how you're going to operate. They're, they're making decisions about the structure of your processes, how your procurement laws. In a lot of ways, they're, they're operating like a, a fairly, at times, disinterested board of directors, and sometimes an overly interested board of directors, depending on, on what's, what's happened recently. And I had the, the benefit of, of having worked for some chairman that understood real estate and cared about real estate and wanted to get involved and wanted to shape federal real estate. And particularly starting in, well, I guess, uh, two thousand seven or so, I had a chairman like that who, who very much wanted to shape federal real estate, thought there was a real value uh, opportunity there to uh, right-size the federal real estate portfolio for the government to get better deals in their real estate transactions, particularly with sure. leasing. Mm-hmm. And we developed a strategy to do that. And in many ways, when I was interviewed for my, for my job, they asked me, you know, what would you do? And what would your goals be? And I said, you know, without moments hesitation, my goal would be to save $5 billion in the transactions we do while I'm there. And there are three ways, three areas that I, I would focus on. First is leasing, because I'd say that's where the low-hanging fruit is. Next would be restructuring the own portfolio. That's a little more difficult because we don't have access to capital like you do through a lease to restructure that portfolio. And the third thing would be public-private partnerships because we don't have enough access to capital. So we, we need P3s to get access to, to capital. And, and then basically we said, well, that sounds great. We want to save money too. 
go do it. Mm-hmm. This is what we, what, what we want you to do. That was very much the, the bipartisan strategy we had developed over years in Congress. So had you know, alignment with the board of directors, so to speak. And then I went into this operational role, knowing exactly what I wanted to, to, to accomplish and was hired for that purpose. So I had the, the backing and support of you know, the administration to, to go do this. And I also had a pretty well-developed reputation within GSA because they'd worked with me on and off for quite some time. Mm-hmm. I think I had a, probably a, a well-founded reputation for kind of fiscal conservatism. And no nonsense, I was involved in the Western Regions Conference scandal investigation. So people know what I thought about stuff like that. Not going to put up or tolerate with things like that. So better not be happening. And uh, knock on wood, we haven't had any problems like that in three and a half years. We focused on the core business and we've achieved, uh, frankly, overachieved the goals that that we set um, when we came in. And it's been... It's been a great run. Well, it's interesting. Your predecessors, very few of them, if any, had the experience that you had at Congress, which gave you, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, a perspective and understanding of the frustrations that you were going to have in that role. My guess is your predecessors probably didn't realize when they got that job what kind of frustrations they'd have in dealing with the GAO, Congress, you know, all the agencies that had their demands. And, you know, it's like playing three-dimensional chess, I think, in some, some, sometimes at your role, because you had more than, more than five masters at the same time, it seems like. You're absolutely right. It, um, for real estate, <laughs> an interesting thing, because there are so many players involved and, and stakeholders, and they all have they all make decisions for for different reasons. They have different interests and, and goals that they're trying to accomplish. And you know, if you don't understand what you know the party on the other side of the negotiating table, like what's important to them, it's, you know, good luck negotiating a deal, right? You need to understand those types of things. And so, I, I did have, I think, that advantage of of understanding where they're coming from, what's important to them. And uh, from these different areas and, you know, your big stakeholder groups, of course, is Congress, OMB, you know, the agencies, and then, of course, the, the, the private sector. And I, I, did, I think I had a lot of advantages coming into the position that some of my predecessors didn't have. But it's I mean, uh, just working as long as you did for the government itself and understanding what moves and what doesn't move and how quickly it moves. <laughs> And then what buttons you need to push to get things to move. That alone is, a, is an advantage coming in a position like yours, I would think. That and having a, a clear objective. Right. And an objective that makes sense. I think that's also really important, right? I yeah, think- well, because you had perspective. It helps to have that perspective. You know, you saw it on the other side, and you probably observed after 22 years watching other GSA building public building service directors, gee, if I were in that role, I'd, I don't think I would have done it that way. <laughs> I've got my own ideas and I know how I think I can make it better. And obviously you came in with some, some clear goals and it sounds like based on what you just said, you've achieved or overachieved them and that's great. That's exciting and it has to make you 
feel gratified after uh, your service a little bit. Yeah, it's been a rewarding experience. And um, it's one thing to have some ideas, right? But like I said earlier on, I put ideas into action. And you can't do that by yourself. And I was incredibly fortunate to have, you know, a good team of motivated people, career professionals at GSA, frankly, that that understand the organization in a way that that I didn't understand, just not having been in GSA. And taking these ideas and helping translate them into action through a you know a 5500 person organization with 30,000 plus contractors that's not an easy thing <laughs> it's actually quite quite difficult to get an organization to change course and move and focus and concentrate its energies and resources on a few priorities so you can actually affect meaningful change or over a relatively short period of time I was fortunate in being able to, to find a, a group of people, some of whom I already knew and, and others that I, that I didn't, but I, I got to know when I was there, who were able and willing to help with that. And that made all the, all the difference in the world because you, you need people on the inside of the organization that understand the dynamics of the organization to help translate those ideas into, into action and actually deliver and execute. What, when you arrived, what was the biggest surprise that you found? What were the most surprising aspects of the job that you had to quickly learn and understand that you didn't realize when you were sitting over in Congress? Well, well there were a few things that I learned that um, were well hidden from Congress. And I expected some of that. Some of it was, was a shock. And it became an important part of that number one priority, leasing. And so probably the most shocking thing that I learned was GSA was replacing about 42% of its expiring leases with a, a long-term solution. So that means almost 60% were not being replaced. They were just some sort of short-term holding action. That was a, a real shock when I got there. And every lease was treated the same in terms of performance metrics. There's all sorts of metrics that are tracked on a regular basis, almost an overwhelming number of metrics. And again, you need to kind of distill from that what's most important to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. And in our case, it was about identifying and achieving value creation for the taxpayers and our tenants. It was focused on money, right? We weren't, weren't chasing various policy goals. We're, we're chasing the core business. Let's do this better, which means providing real estate for agencies that they need to deliver on their mission at the lowest possible cost for the taxpayers and for them. That's mm -hmm. the mission. Well, if you're replacing 43% of your leases and doing some short-term holding action for all the others, you're paying a premium for that. Of course. You're, you're paying a tremendous premium. Of course. And I quickly said, well, Go crunch some numbers and tell me how long we stay in a lease. 26.9 years. 26.9 years. And what's our average lease term? The average firm term was just around a little over five years. I said five years. Okay. There's a huge value proposition there, right? The federal government, we have one of the longest time horizons in federal real estate than anybody. On average, our data tells us we stay almost 27 years in a lease. 
but yet our average lease is five years. So we are paying for flexibility. We almost never exercise. We're paying a tremendous premium for that. Well, and that let, let me stop you for just a moment here. I want to understand the lease process for a moment. In my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, to get a budget commitment to exercise a new lease for an agency or a building situation. So it may be multiple agencies under one lease. I don't know. Sometimes that's the case, I think. You have to budget for the entire lease cost up front in that fiscal year. Is that correct? So let's say you do a 20-year lease, 30 bucks a foot on 100,000 square feet. You've got to pay the entire, you've got to, you've got to allocate in the federal budget for the year it's, it's approved the total amount of that re- lease obligation for that 20-year lease. Is that correct? No, actually it's not. But you've, you've narrowed in on probably one of the most significant authorities and controversies in federal leasing. That, that's what I'm going to do in this interview because I'm <laughs> a real estate person and I, le- I did a lot of GSA lease deals. So I'm going to get that's into that. With you. So <laughs> if you think about GSA, Congress, again, I think created a really genius system. Unfortunately, it's, it's suffering under a variety of distortions right now. And those distortions need to be lifted really to, to get it to operate effectively. But GSA created, I'm sorry, Congress created GSA to be the federal government's landlord, pretty much. And so, so we are basically a real estate division of the federal government, right? A really large company. So our mission is to get the real estate agencies need to perform their mission at the lowest possible cost. Mm-hmm. That, that's our value proposition. That's why we were created. That's our primary operating model. However, GSA, uh, Congress created a financial model for us, which is more like an owner investor. We charge rent and we have to make a profit because if we, our rent has to cover all of our expenses and our, our profit, our net, op, net operating income, is our source of capital. We have to generate our own capital. We don't have access to debt for the most part, right? Not for our own, own facilities. Few exceptions, but for the most part, we fund all of our capital projects with equity, equity that we have to generate. So we have to make a profit. So we have these dual business models. On the one hand, we're trying to lower the cost of real estate, for the federal government. But on the other hand, you have to make a profit. <laughs> so sometimes- well, this is your own real estate, not your leased real estate you're talking about now. Correct. Leases operate more like a pass-through. We put right. a fee on that, which we'll probably right. get to a little bit later. But you know, we, we need to break even at least on that. But that's how our, our business model works. So uh, when it comes to leasing, nobody has, almost nobody, has the uh, legal authority to commit the government to pay over time unless they have that money in hand when they sign that contract. If they do, that's called an Anti-Deficiency Act is one of the most fundamental principles of federal appropriations law and the Constitution, right? No expenditure shall be made out of the, the Treasury without an appropriation. That's, that's in Article One of the Constitution. GSA has a very unique legal authority. We can sign leases up to 20 years long and only have first year's rent in hand when we sign that contract. That's why GSA is pretty much the government's leasing agent. 
because we have that authority and almost nobody else does. We also have a federal, a federal buildings fund that stands behind that commitment to pay a lessor for up to 20 years. And that's, nobody else has got that federal buildings fund. So we have the financial basis to basically make good those financial commitments we make when we sign leases. And anybody else who has leasing authority, for the most part, what you described is exactly what they have to do. But if they had 20 years worth of lease payments in hand when they were signing that lease, well, they'd probably just build whatever it is they need or buy it. You would think so. Why would they lease it? They can't because they don't have that much capital. Um, That's why they lease, but they come to us to lease. Or they're using our authority that we've delegated to them, like the Veterans Affairs Department. They do a lot of leases, but those are all under our authority. Well, let me, let me go back to even more fundamental question. Why does the government even lease space in the first place? Why don't they just own everything for their, for their operations? And with the compression of space use that's inevitable out of this pandemic, long-term, why wouldn't the government just say, okay, let all the leases lapse and we're going to consolidate everybody in owned buildings that we have? Why wouldn't they do that? Great questioning, and you're honing right into, uh, I think, a couple issues that, uh, the first one, why, why lease instead of owning, right? That's this giant federal real estate question, why would you do that? That's one issue, and then the other one is what's going to happen in the future. But let me take that first question first. Leasing versus owning. There's a, a lot of people that would say ownership is, is more cost-effective than leasing for the federal government. Federal government's got a long-term requirement, not going anywhere. Over time, it's going to be more cost-effective to own versus leasing. I would say in many situations, that's true. But it's not always true. There's a variety of reasons why it's not true. First, federal government's needs aren't always permanent. They change. Requirements change. And when you build a building and own it, that's a 50-year commitment. Well, Things change. And then some. And then some. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's probably at least a 50-year commitment. Mm-hmm. Well, things change in 50 years. Yeah. Just think of where we were 50 years ago or 60 years ago and the way government delivered its services and performed its mission compared to today. Things change. And when they do, and if you've got a, an owned asset, it may or may not reflect those needs anymore. An office building 50 years ago is nowhere as efficient as a a modern office building. And the other thing, government procurement. We've got lots of constraints and laws and limitations that make federally owned real estate more expensive than privately owned real estate. So leasing has some cost advantages as well. Private lessors can provide real estate for the most part at a lower cost basis than the federal government can. What the variable there is their cost of financing. And so the Office of Management and Budget, they will say, they will look at a government-owned solution versus a lease solution, and they will look at it and say, the only difference here is the cost of financing. And they'll say, well, government can finance for less, less cost than the private sector, therefore government ownership's cheaper. Well, in reality, those aren't the two, only two, diff- that's not the only difference. 
private sector will deliver that property a heck of a lot faster than the government construction will take place. So the initial acquisition costs are different. Leasing is can be more cost-effective depending on what your needs are than ownership. But there certainly are some situations, particularly if it's a long-term need, you've got a lot of customization, a lot of tenant improvements you're going to sink into a facility. Think intelligence-related types of facilities. Ownership in that case probably is more cost-effective than leasing. So in those situations, why do we lease? Access to capital. Mm-hmm. They don't get full access to capital. With a but lease, there's, you can yeah, there's also the named buildings issue too with regard to, like for instance, let's just say that Department of Age, Housing and Urban Development doesn't even use a quarter of its building or maybe a half with its personnel. And HHS needs space. Could you merge, you know, two or three agencies under a government-owned building that's named for another agency? I mean, there's a political aspect to that, but maybe not. I don't know. I mean, and then retrofitting buildings to accommodate multi-tenant use, too, is, is another cost, of course. Yeah, we, we clearly have multi-tenant buildings, owned buildings. They, they're more common outside of the Washington, D.C. area mm-hmm. for the reasons just mentioned right now. The HHS headquarters doesn't want to let somebody else in what they think is their building. But in every major city, most of our big federal buildings are multi-tenant. In D.C., you have a lot of headquarters, so it tends to be a little bit different. But I think that's going to change in the near future because they're sitting on more space than they need. And that kind of gets us to that, qu- that question you uh, were asking about, what's the future hold, right? And clearly... If you look at the data, and the data is not everywhere, right? We we collect occupancy data, daily occupancy data, in about 50 million square feet of space. So, what is that? Uh, you know, we have about a little under 400 million. So it's 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 a, a fraction of our total footprint, but it pretty universally tells us the same story. There's a lot of empty chairs every day in federal office buildings, and this is pre-COVID. Post-COVID, office buildings are somewhere between 10 to maybe 30% occupancy right now. Oh, the federal government. what a waste. You know, there, there are notable exceptions, of course, right? You've got some federal agencies that never really scaled back. They couldn't give them the nature of their work. I think, you know, FEMA's operations center, that's been running full steam ahead ever since this began. HHS's operations centers, right? That's, that's running full steam ahead. A lot of the intel and law and federal law enforcement where they're doing classified work, you can't take that home. So, you know, they're, they're pretty high occupancies too. But nonetheless, I think the data is pretty clear. There, there's more space than the federal government needed pre-COVID. Post-COVID, there are, uh, I think agencies are learning that remote work is pretty successful in most instances, not all instances, but in, in most. And that's going to have implications for for their consumption of real estate in the future. We've got federal employees that have, I think in many ways, probably appreciate not having to commute as often as they do. There's a financial, personal financial impact on them. Yeah. There's, there's time, people have a lot more time in their day than they, than they had when they're making long commutes. They're able to, to work kind of outside of the normal working schedule, which is also has some real benefits to, to individuals, work-life balance and things like that. That all being said, I think the point is the workforce, a certain element of the workforce is probably going to resist coming back into the offices just 
as they did, uh, you know, at the same level they did pre-COVID. So, you know, you combine those things, there's a value proposition there for agencies. And right now there's a lot of federal money going out the door and that pendulum is going to swing back the other way. And when it does, agencies are going to be squeezed. They're going to be looking for ways to, you know, perform their mission with less expenses. And I think real estate is going to be a place they're going to look at. Change, changes is, is going to be coming into federal real estate, I think, over the next few years as a result. It seems to me, looking at Southwest Washington, you know, the federal area, which is, you know, when I think of south of the mall, you know, pretty much from basically the wharf area all the way across, it's, uh, it's almost all federally owned real estate, you know, yeah. or le- there's a few massive sale leaseback deals there, but most of them are federally owned. That whole area potentially has tremendous value is in private hands, potentially. So uh, I don't know if there's ever a consideration. I know there was a, at one point, there was an auction for a few buildings that they were trying to get rid of. It seems to me that the federal government could mine value from that real estate pretty extensively if they're not historic designations and et cetera that you have to overcome there. Well, even, even historic buildings sometimes, um, because they are expensive to operate, oftentimes the best value proposition for the government is to, if the demand's there, is to have a private sector entity take it over and turn a money-losing property that has massive deferred capital liabilities, turn it into a uh, money-making proposition yes. for the federal government and have somebody else put the, the capital to necessary to reinvest in the property and bring it you know, up into a productive use. And, and there are two examples I can think of right off the top of my head. First is the hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue that's known yeah. as the Trump International Hotel. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is another hotel, which is uh, the former Tariff Building. Hotel Monaco. The Gallery Place, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and when you look at the old post office, so that was actually, that deal was driven by legislation out of my old committee to force GSA to look at a public-private partnership because the, the facility had a quarter billion dollar capital re- reinvestment requirement, which you know was very unlikely. It lost in terms of a, you know, it had a negative <laughs> operating income. They collected, I, I think, about $6 million a year in rent from their tenants, and it cost them close to $12 million a year to operate, just expenses. So they were losing money hand over fist. It's not an efficient building in terms of design or layout for offices. Didn't make a lot of sense, but it was sitting on the most priceless location Mm -hmm. and with real advantages to the the property, but just not for federal office space. It didn't make any sense for the federal government to be housing federal employees in that building. You know, that's that's a property that made a lot of sense to redevelop put it to a higher and better use with a private partner. You know, that transaction was put out to bid and awarded under uh, the Obama administration. Obviously, we didn't have anything to do with that. And, uh, you know, uh, close to a quarter billion dollars was uh, in capital was put into the building. It was fully upgraded. But for the pandemic, it was uh, uh, really brought life back to that part of Pennsylvania Avenue. It generates 
you know, what used to be a $6 million loss for GSA, it's a $3 million a year or at a minimum $3 million a year positive uh, cash flow for, for GSA. That's real win-win. Um, and there are other properties like that in the Washington area that could lend itself to that. And when I think about south of Independence Avenue in Southwest, I, again, you got to ask yourself, why are we using some of the most potentially valuable real estate in Washington mm-hmm. to just house a, a back office function? That, that doesn't yes. make any sense. Like, why would we do that? It's not, that doesn't make a lot of sense at all. And those buildings are getting old. And so their capital investment is required. Massive capital investment is required for those buildings. There's coming a time not too far in the future where those questions, what to do with those facilities, does it make sense to house federal employees there? All those questions are going to come to the forefront. Has GSA ever executed a highest and best use analysis of any of its property over time in your experience or knowledge? You know what that is, I assume. Yes, it's not really. No, I didn't think so. Yeah. It just seems to me that really. if you applied, you know, private sector real estate valuation to, and made a presentation appropriately to Congress and say, you know, if you use this real estate properly, <laughs> you could really do quite well here. Yeah. You know, and the classic case I use for that is the FBI situation, which was a long time mm-hmm. RF SFO that obviously you're, the Trump administration decided to kill. But, uh, you know, uh, there were a lot of interesting plans for that, for, that, for that site that I read about and heard about that could yeah. have created a lot of value. And if the government had stayed in as a lessor of the land, could have benefited from long-term, I think. But I'd be curious what your thoughts are about that situation. Well, you, so the public-private partnerships, there are, there are limitations on the government that, that does make it more difficult to do certain types of deals because of budgetary scoring rules. And, and those can make it impossible to do certain types of deals in the way those scoring rules are, are implemented currently. In a nutshell, if the government owns a property and they do a ground lease to, to somebody, and then that developer puts money into that location, recapitalizes the property, whether they tear it down and build something new on it, or in the case of the old post office, renovate it, right? As long as the federal government doesn't lease that property back transaction. There are legal authorities to do those types of deals. Mm-hmm. But as soon as the federal government decides to lease back those improvements under current scoring rules, the way they are implemented, that creates a, a scoring problem. And to make a long story short, if the government's going to do that and lease back that entire property, and they invest in, say, $250 million into it. The way OMB applies the scoring rules right now, GSA would need to have a check for $250 million, the value of those improvements, the time they sign that lease. And they'd have to obligate that money. And then you go, well, why would anybody do that? If you have $250 million, why why would you just renovate it yourself, right? Yes, that is what would happen, which is why those deals don't, don't take place. But... 
the old post office deal could happen because the federal government's not occupying that space. It's excess space. Yeah. The federal government's not leasing it back. It's not using it. Right. Uh, well, I think in the case of the FBI, they were going to lo locate to another location. I think the, the deal was it was going to be a swap type structure on the land, as I recall. It just seems to me they could have done a sale or a lease back, a lease, tear the building down, and then go find space elsewhere. And I think the idea was one developer was going to do both, basically yeah. build a new facility private on the, on the existing facility and then build to suit for a new FBI building in another location was the idea, I think, there. Yeah, again, that was the, the previous administration structured that deal. And yep. I got to yep. tell you, you know, I was on Capitol Hill at the time and we were not terribly impressed with it. We thought there was no way in the world it was going to work. The value proposition wasn't there, meaning the value of that property was insufficient to um, replace the FBI's headquarters. And therefore, Congress, in addition to the exchange, would have to cut a giant check. And that would dramatically increase the risk of that project yep. basically closing. And that's exactly what happened. There was nowhere near enough value in the exchange to pay for the new headquarters. Congress was going to have to write a giant check. At the time, GSA did not disclose to Congress just how big that check would have to be. That was one of the other things I learned when I got to GSA. That's one of the first things I asked. What happened? Why'd you cancel? Because uh, they canceled it before I got there. They ultimately, there wasn't enough money to sign the contract because the value in the exchange wouldn't cover the total cost. Congress would have to appropriate the difference. And GSA hadn't even told Congress just what the difference was. And it was much, much larger than Congress thought. So in concept, that transaction structure could work, but the value proposition wasn't there. Now, there is an example of where they did an exchange, basically what they were proposing for the FBI headquarters up in Boston. And it's works. It's underway right now. It's just in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, called uh, the Volpe Center, which was a, a DOT 1950s era building sitting on, I think, 14 acres in downtown Cambridge, adjacent to MIT. And valuable real estate. Incredibly valuable and incredibly underdeveloped, which is different than the Pennsylvania Avenue site. In that case, you've got more square footage on that site than, frankly, you're allowed under any of the, the, you know, the, the FAR and, and zoning requirements of that area. Cambridge, it was flipped. Yeah, massive land, very underdeveloped. So development potential, uh, very high. So to replace the DOT's facility, you could do it on four acres uh, of that parcel and then hand over 10 acres of land to a developer in Cam downtown Cambridge to, to build you know, a lot of square footage. Value proposition there, very, very strong. That deal uh, went forward as a three quarters of a billion dollars is the value proposition that GSA is getting for that land. Mm. We're getting a brand new building that's being built right now to our specifications by MIT and through their development partner. And basically they're building the building first. They tore down the old one, building the new building. When it's done, the exchange will take place. Government will take title. 
well, will take possession of this new building. Actually, we already have the land. And then we will hand over the, the 10 acres to MIT. And in fact, they're going to have a cash equalization payment because the building is in three quarters of a billion dollars. GSA is going to get a big check on top of it as well. So it's possible to do these types of public-private partnerships if the, if the financial value proposition's there. Mm-hmm. In the case of uh, Pennsylvania Avenue, it, it wasn't. Interesting. Let me get into some of the mechanics of leasing for a minute, if I can. Could you walk me through the process from the initial requirement that a federal agency initiates the delivery of their space, both from the owned and leased space side, in a, at a high level? Just walk me through that process. Sure. Know. Sure. So at a high level, it starts at the same place. It starts with an agency that has a requirement. And in a lease, it can be triggered by an expiring lease, mm-hmm. or it could be something new. You know, there's a federal mission that has, has developed, and they need more space somewhere. So the first thing we do, and this is governed by federal um, regulations, actually, first thing we do is work with them on the requirement to try and define it translated into a real estate requirement. So they have a mission requirement. We have to translate that into a real estate requirement with a tenant agency. And once we do that, then we take that real estate requirement and decide, okay, how can we meet it? And federal rules require us to look for federally owned space first. That's the first priority. If it's federally owned and we have a place to accommodate that requirement, then that's what we would, what we would do. If there isn't a federally owned space or the ability to build a new federal location, then we'll, we'll can look at a leased alternative. So if you then decide to do a lease because there is no federal, apparent federal solution to it, depending on the size of the lease, and this is also true for an owned solution, if the lease is over roughly $3.2 million a year, then we need authority from Congress from a couple of committees in Congress. So we would have to prepare what's known as a prospectus for the proposed action, either leasing or maybe it could be government construction or renovation. And that prospectus is developed in coordination with a tenant and the Office of Management and Budget. And that's one thing I learned when I was um, got to GSA, which I didn't fully appreciate over my days on Capitol Hill, just how significant of a role the Office of Management and budget plays in those decisions and how they play. So OMB has to sign off on this prospectus and then it's sent to Capitol Hill. And Capitol Hill has to authorize that. Two committees in Congress authorize it. My old committee was one of them. And they do that by committee resolution. And now if it's a lease, then we're good to go. We've got everything we need to award a lease, to enter into a lease solicitation, you know, or LP it's called, a real request for lease proposals, put that on the street. GSA can do that. They can develop the request for lease proposals before they send the prospectus to Congress, but they can't put it out on the street. Once the prospectus goes to Congress, then they can issue it. They can advertise, put it out on the street that we have this requirement. We're seeking a lease to fulfill it. They can run, GSA can run the procurement right up to award, but they can't sign the contract unless they have the authority from Congress. And so there's a little bit of risk involved. If GSA gets too far in front of itself, you know, they run their procurement up to award. If Congress hasn't bought into that requirement, because Congress could change it, they could say, no, we're going to make it smaller. You know, and then GSA could be in a bind, right? If they went out 
trying to lease 100,000 square feet and Congress says, no, 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 that's too much space. You're only going to get 80,000 square feet. That could be a risk. And so sometimes you have to manage those issues. So you turn to the agency and say, you're not going to get 100,000 feet. You're going to get 80. So you're going to have to squeeze everybody in. Right. So the right way to run a procurement like that, a requirement like that, is to make sure you're working with those variety of stakeholders early in the process so you're not blindsiding them. So uh, you've got an understanding and hopefully a consensus among those parties about what the end goal is. And then then all those steps become formalities. Too often, GSA and agencies do that in a vacuum. And then they run into a no somewhere in that process. Mm-hmm. And then, then you've got problems at a stage in the process where it's difficult to address those problems without time, schedule, and budget problems. And that's oftentimes how lease procurements and, and even capital procurements go sideways is when that, that work to develop that consensus among the different parties hasn't taken place fully enough. And someone's moving ahead sort of in isolation, thinking that everything will be fine, everyone will agree, and then for some reason, everyone doesn't. Those are real risks in any of those projects. And so it really helps to to manage those project risks early on with the different stakeholders so you don't get into that situation. But, But again, so once Congress authorizes, then you can actually sign a lease. And then once you have a signed lease, depending on what it is, you know, maybe you're already in the space if it's a renewal or on the other extreme, it's a new build to suit. And, uh, you know, if it's, a, if it's a build to suit, signing the lease, by no means are you done at that point. In many ways, the project has sort of just begun uh, the execution phase. Now you got to um, finalize your design intent drawings with the tenant. You need to hand those over to the, to the lessor. You know, the, the, the lease deal probably at least in this environment, there are a variety of concessions you probably negotiated in terms of free rent, tenant improvements. And so the government's objective at that point is to make sure that you don't squander any of those benefits that you negotiated in that lease in the execution phase, um, the development phase of that, of that property, if it's a build to suit. It's very easy to lose control of a project with a tenant that you know, changes their, their mind about what they want and when they want it. And then that opens the door for a, um, you know, for the lessor to change orders and renegotiate the, the lease after it was signed. <laughs> There's your, all sorts of ways to your, have problems. Your lease is what I would call kind of an omnibus lease in a way, in that within that lease, if it's a large lease, let's say, you might have multiple agencies that are your, so it's like a master lease in a way, and you've got agencies. So what's the agreement internally? between you, GSA, and the agency? Is there a specific agreement that, we, that the public doesn't see? It's a kind of an interagency yeah. agreement? Yes, yeah. great, great question. How you manage it, how you manage that, those tenants? Because they could jockey around amongst each other and say, oh, GSA won't hear about this. We'll just do this and this and this, by, and they won't even know. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of games, you're right. They, they do get paid. <laughs> But in a nutshell, the way that works, right, is you have what's known as an occupancy agreement between GSA and our tenant agency. Uh, obviously, GSA signs the lease right. with, with the lessor. That's so the GSA public, is public-private agreement. 
Right. Yeah. So TSA is contractually obligated to pay that. And again, we have the legal authority to sign a lease and only obligate the first year's rent. Our tenant agencies don't have that authority. Um, that's why they need us. But it also ensures that the, that the land, the lessor gets paid. Uh, right. We have a federal buildings fund behind us that has right. know, half billion dollars in revenues coming in every year from the rent we charge our tenants, which provides the, the, the money to, to pay those, those obligations. So that's the way that the system works. And we have what's known as an occupancy agreement with our tenant agencies. And those agreements can, can vary. They can have cancellation clauses or they might not have a cancellation clause. If it's a bill to sit lease for a courthouse, you know, for the judiciary, yeah, there's probably no cancellation clause in there, right? They, they're on the hook, they have to stay and they have to pay through the life of that lease. It's a regular office space. It might be 120 days notice. The, uh, the tenant could notify us in writing in 120 days that they don't need it anymore and they walk. And then GSA, you know, we kind of aggregate the government's risk of a vacancy risk. And we also have the abilities to backfill it with other federal tenants. Or, you know, we also have a federal buildings fund standing behind us. So we can ensure that those obligations are paid. Even if so you're a giant master lessor, this is what you are. Yeah. <laughs> we are. And we mitigate risk yeah. for the government as a whole. Because right. when you have agencies running around leasing their own space, which some do, because they don't fully understand, they don't really have the authority to do that. And then they get into a situation where, oh, they don't need it. But they sign that contract, government's obligated to it, they have to pay. And then they're, they're in the real bind. And that happens every now and then. There's a pretty well, then they assign their lease to you as GSA <laughs> and say, you guys take this mess. <laughs> you know, there was a, a, a well-known example of that in Washington, D.C. several years ago when the Securities and Exchange Commission, over a weekend, signed a lease for 900,000 square feet, 10 years firm, I believe it was, half billion dollar contract value for people they hadn't even hired yet. Mm. And lo and behold, they didn't seem to understand that... Uh, you know, the Republicans took over the House in 2012, and they didn't seem to realize that they might not get approval to hire all those thousands of people they thought they were going to hire. So they were never, that never took place. Yet, nonetheless, they had signed that lease and created a, an Anti-Deficiency Act violation when they did it, which was also a big deal. They were in a bad situation. And, and basically, GSA took over the lease for them, kind of bailed them out of that situation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it, so it you, could, you do workouts too with, <laughs> with your tenants. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I get it. So since GSA is an intermediary between the private landlords and each a agent, you need a margin to operate. You talked about that funding your. So let's just say GSA pays the landlord thirty bucks gross to the to the landlord. What does GSA charge the agency for rent and services in that specific situation? So if it's thirty bucks you're paying as a, as, a, as a tenant, what are you collecting for? What's the margin typically? Is there a set margin? Is it negotiated? Is it, you know, what kind of profit are you allowed to keep as an agency? I mean, you could jam them if you wanted to, right? But, but can you? Yeah, uh, legal, <laughs> right? We, um, our legal authority is broad, but by policy, we charge two rates, 5% and 7%. 5% is non-cancelable, 7% is cancelable. We used to so charge 7% times $30, let's just say in this situation would be $2.10 a foot. Right. That's your margin. 
That's okay. the that's the fee. That's the fee we charge, right? Now, it used to be a little bit higher. It used to be a percentage point higher. It was it was reduced uh, over a decade ago. Don't know exactly when it was done. When that happened, GSA basically stopped breaking even on its leases. And uh, this year we got to the point where we're, I think like 0.03% away from breaking even, but we became a little more cost effective on our operating expenses. But that, when I say break even, what I mean is it covers all the operating expenses related to administering all those leases. Plus it covers that vacancy risk. It's almost like an insurance policy. Mm-hmm. Some agencies turn back space a little bit early. Um, it happens sometimes. And so at any given moment, we're carrying some empty leased space, uh, vacant leased space, meaning we're not collecting rent from our tenant, yet we have to pay rent. And so that fee is designed to cover all of those costs as well. So we have a strong financial incentive to minimize our, our lease vacancies. So if we have one and it's big, we're looking for a backfill tenant. And under our authorities, we have the ability again, to say to a federal agency, if you're in this market and your lease just expired or you got a new requirement, we'll say, okay, we're going to put you in this lease over here because there's you know, three years left on the term or five years or whatever it is. So we're incentivized to keep those vacancies low and, and they are very, very low because our fee can't, can't handle, uh, you know, uh, I think we're at um, around one to 2% vacancy. In our, in our leases. So it's really quite low. It has to be or, or we lose money on leases. Interesting. That's the way it works. Yeah. So having read a bunch of leases, it seems like half the language in leases today are irrelevant to the real estate deal, but there are all kinds of issues that are brought in to how what the landlord's obligations are and that are, have unrelated to the real estate, but to the way the people in the, in the in the space are being handled and things that you wouldn't see in ordinary leases is is that a continued process? And is is it a political thing that everybody's trying to pork barrel these leases with the, all these different policies and things that are in there? I mean, what's the origin of all that? I mean, is it purely politics? I mean, what what it's um, no, that's a great question and. I think every commissioner that comes in takes a stab at trying to, uh, you know, right size the federal lease. And we did it to some extent, right? We have our standard lease and we have what's called a simplified lease. And so we raised the threshold. We got Congress to raise the threshold by statute of what a simplified lease is. So that captured a much larger number of lease transactions with these simplified leases. Although I think in the private sector, they'd look at that and say, you call that, a, that's not a simplified lease. But compared to our standard lease, it is. And that's helpful because you look at our lease portfolio, you know, it's amazing how things tend to follow that 80-20 rule. It's, not, it's more like a 70-30 rule, rule in our case, but 30% of our leases represent probably about 70% of the dollar value. The flip side of that is we have a lot of leases that, that are smaller and represent a relatively small value. So so we did raise the simplified lease threshold, got Congress to do that. So that helps with the really, really large number of small leases to simplify those. But on the bigger leases, there are all sorts of statutes that govern federal leasing. Energy efficiency standards, we're probably 
this omnibus probably put a few new standards on us. Undoubtedly. <laughs> uh, for, for federal leases. There are all sorts of procurement laws and regulations that stem from those laws that put required clauses into leases. We kind of went through that exercise when I got there as well, to identify all the different clauses in the lease and, and why is it there? What's, what's requiring that clause to be there? And the most troublesome ones are statute and regulation. So you really can't get rid of them without changing the statute. And that's frankly a hard thing to do. In terms of trying to accomplish meaningful change and value creation in an organization like PBS when I got there, you know, it's important to know when, you're, when you come into a position like, like that, you can't do 50 things. That's just not possible. No. You can do three. <laughs> maybe four. So you better pick the ones that are most important, that have the most value creation potential and drive the organization towards achieving that. And fixing the standard lease wasn't in the top three. So we made changes where we could, simplified the large number of, of small transactions just to kind of reduce the, the the, the labor and, and, and transaction volume that was bearing our leasing workforce. So they could free up their resources and energies and focus on that 20, 30% of the leases that represent 70, 80% of the dollar value. That was the foundation of our lease cost avoidance plan. That was our number one priority. So we went after that like a, like a laser. We went from replacing 42% of those leases with long-term solutions to 79% of that lease contract value with long-term solutions this fiscal year. Our major metric and our, our big strategy was using longer-term, firm-term leases because, again, we were leaving tremendous value on the table, negotiating table, sure. with short-term leases. So yeah. we changed that. We also made a real push to use brokers for, to negotiate on behalf of the government on these larger deals to make sure that we, we get as many concessions as we can and, and better pricing. So we really focused on that universe. Our primary metric for success is, are two different things. One is called lease cost relative to market. So almost every lease transaction we do, and this is part of the procurement process, we have to basically do an appraisal or an assessment as to what the market rate is in that location. So you've got a basis upon which to compare the offers you get when you're making a, a contracting decision. So it's contracting rules kind of govern that process. But that gives you a, some important data points too as to how well are you negotiating your, those deals. Sure. Historically, GSA was, was coming in 3 to 4% below the midpoint of the market on our lease deals. This change in strategy, we're averaging 14% below the midpoint of the market on the deals that we closed in the last two and a half years. That and the contract value that we're actually executing has almost quadrupled. Because remember, we were doing a bunch of short-term deals before. Mm -hmm. Now we're doing 10, 15, 20-year deals on the leases that represent 70 to 80% of the, the contract value. Well, land 
landlords love that because it, it's financeable then. I mean, it's a very difficult thing to finance a five-year GSA lease. <laughs> it's almost impossible to do because it's a cliff. You yep. just don't know that they're going to renew or not, even if they have a renewal option. Right. I was in the, the credit tenant lease business for a couple of years and worked on the the NIAID lease up at uh, in Rockville. I worked to, to mm-hmm. compete on that deal. We didn't win it, but we competed for it. We competed on the HHS lease that was, you know, in a pretty adjacent building there in Rockville as well. Yeah. We didn't win either one of those, but we bid really hard. But understanding what goes into that, you know, that issue, that effort is uh, it's something. It is probably the most important change that we implemented during this administration. I think it really stemmed from just a better understanding of the nature of leasing and where values created and where kind of values destroyed. Sure. <laughs> and having that long firm term lease, which matches up with our actual occupancies. Remember that data plan I gave you early on, right? Our average tenancy is 27 years. Yeah, you know, we're doing five year leases. It's, it's crazy. So there was a tremendous opportunity to, to educate our, our, our workforce about how to achieve a better deal. For the, for the agencies and our taxpayers by using longer firm terms. And, you know, I think it just goes to show uh, how much money we were leaving on the table. Oh, them. absolutely. The, the financing savings are tremendous. They're massive. I mean, and now, especially with interest rates where they are, it's ridiculous. I mean, you could probably finance a 10, well, 15-year GSA lease, you know, right around 2% mm-hmm. in today's interest rate market. That's, yeah. If you leverage that up to what that means in lease costs, that's significant. Absolutely. And, and it's a true win-win situation, yeah. right? Everybody it's, wins. Everybody yeah. involved wins in that deal. Right. And I, I tell you, my, my greatest concern is that if without strong emphasis on that point at GSA and tenants because of COVID, being faced with a lot of uncertainty and a lot of indecision about what they want to do, my greatest concern is that GSA will lapse back into old habits and go back to short-term leases at a time when you know the real estate market is suffering in a lot of ways. And one of the few bright spots, frankly, are GSA leases. Because we're out there in the market and we're out there with long-term deals and we're benefiting from it immensely. The federal government is, is getting yeah. fabulous well, deals right now because of that. And we could lose that if that, if that changes. So my, my next question has to do with your looking back over your tenure, three plus years, at what you've accomplished, what grade would you give yourself and why? Great question. I, I'm a hard grader. I just, just ask my employees. Um, so I think in a lot of ways, uh, we've been very successful. We had a clear goal. Um, again, say $5 billion. We've, we've exceeded that already. So in a lot of ways, I'd say NA. But there are also some other things that I wish we could have made more progress on. So I'd say B plus, A minus overall. On the leasing side, definitely gave us an A. A solid A there. That's been a real win for the government, for the for the agencies, and Good. for uh, and for the industry. Frankly, 
true win-win solution. On the own portfolio, it's it's a little more difficult. Again, our access to capital is challenged. Congress continues to constrain our ability to spend the revenues, that, the rents that we're collecting every year. It's been a, a bit of a frustration of mine coming from Capitol Hill. In many ways, I, I thought I was hired because of uh, my, my relations up there and that I'd be set loose to, to change those conditions under which we operate. And I really wasn't allowed to go engage with Capitol Hill in a way that was necessary to change any of those conditions. So that's been a, probably the most frustrating aspect of my time at GSA is not having the, the freedom to, to go up and, and do what frankly needed to be done to unleash, fully fund the federal buildings fund so that we would have an extra billion to a billion and a half dollars in capital every year uh, in capital projects. That's necessary if you're gonna transform that own portfolio. Because we know there's a quite a bit of excess capacity in that portfolio. It's an aging portfolio. The deferred capital liabilities are huge. You need access to that capital in order to turn that around. And we've been struggle, struggling there because our, our kind of unwillingness to engage at a legislative strategy level, that's been a bit, bit frustrating. Your tenure, uh, but when this is aired, will have ended. So what are you thinking about? at this point for your next step, Dan, at the, or you have anything in mind as to what you want to accomplish. And let me, before you answer that, I want to look, hark back to what you just said a minute, a moment ago about the things you've accomplished, but what you, you are fe- fearful of. Do you think that, you know, maybe your next is to make sure that what you did over the last three and a half years, not necessarily make sure, but advocate for, what you did the last few years in a new role that is outside looking into the government, but has some influence on what the government's thinking about going forward, just out of curiosity. Oh, well, thanks for the question. A couple of things I, I guess I'm, I'm thinking about. One, uh, they're related, but perhaps different as well. In many ways, I, I think what I was able to do at GSA within a large organization, helping it uh, at a strategic level, clearly identify a value proposition and then organize thousands of people, billions of dollars towards achieving that objective and really delivering on that value proposition is an important skill set that I think a lot of entities may find valuable. It was a very rewarding experience, something I I certainly would entertain doing in the future uh, for the right type of organization. That's one potential area that I think could be attractive if the the right opportunity presented itself. And then there's the other type of, of, of activities that you were describing, right? I, I think given my experience and background, Capitol Hill, and now in this current position, I've got a very good understanding of federal real estate, all the major stakeholders, how decisions are made, why decisions are made the way they're made, how to um, help shape and influence and direct those decisions in such a way that uh, Federal real estate can benefit. I'm a firm believer that there is a, a real, with federal real estate, there is a real win-win type of opportunity here. I've been preaching this for, for, for 10 years now. That has, a, I think, value potential for lots of different entities, both within the federal government uh, and in the private sector. There's also, there's also change coming. You know, the pandemic and remote work has caused agencies to 
think differently about their real estate. And as we discussed earlier, there are bigger forces at play here that are going to drive change, whether people want it or not. There are employees, there are financial issues, there are mission-related issues. Change is coming and navigating that change is, is, is not going to be easy for any of a number of entities, both within the government and outside of the government. And I think given what I've been able to, to do and I've learned over the years, I could probably add a lot of value to a variety of entities going forward. And so I hope to stay involved with, uh, with, with federal real estate. It's been really a great experience so far. I uh, love the issues and uh, I think I, I can add value on, on both sides, you know, for the private sector, but for the government service as well. My sense is you're going to have more offers than you're going to be able to manage because of what you were able to accomplish. If you, if you identify those appropriately to the right people, they're going to want it, want your services, I would think very much. So I well, wish I will luck. tell, given, given where I am now, uh, I'm really not uh, in a position to, to explore those fully, but uh, and, understood uh, a little bit longer. Uh, I will understood. Understood. So in the, in the three and a half years you've, or three plus years you've done this, plus your experience in Congress, what leadership lessons have you learned in managing this portfolio and leading hundreds of people or thousands, basically, you, you oversee? Great question. A couple things. Number one, you need a good idea, <laughs> right? It starts with that. You can't fake that, right? You have to know what the value proposition is. You have to understand it. You, you have to have some real ability or capability or understanding as to what the right thing is. You need to narrow it down. Like I said, you can't do 50 things. You can do three things. You need to be able to articulate that to the various organizations that you're working with, both internally and externally. So when I think about leadership at an organization like GSA, it's articulating the goal. It has to be the right goal. It makes sense. Good value proposition. You have to be able to align all the energy and resources of the organization that you, you're responsible for and focus it in and concentrate that energy on towards achieving those objectives in a way that you can measure progress or, or not. So you can see if you're not making progress. So you can course correct on a regular basis. And the other thing a leader has to do is, is, is up and outside of the organization, right? You have to be able to create the conditions under which the organization can be successful in achieving those objectives that you set out. And so it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's a twofold role. It's down and in the organization and up and out of the organization to try and, try and create those conditions where the organization can be successful. Because uh, there's lots of resources in a big organization. The problem is, is they're all going in lots of different directions pursuing things for all sorts of different reasons that may or may, make, may or may not make a lot of sense. And you got to figure out what is most important and what is less important and minimize the less important while covering that risk, maybe it's tolerating a higher risk and shifting focus and energy and resources towards the more important higher value operations and deliver on that. Again, when I, Go back to my leasing example. Every lease at GSA was treated the same in terms of the metrics, whether you're delivering it on time and to just reduce the footprint by 10%. But if you were uh, responsible for executing a lease for a regional commissioner and you're, you're measured on these metrics, 
2,000 square foot lease ranked just as highly as a 200,000 square foot lease because they were both leases and the metrics measured transactions. Insane. Doesn't make any sense. So you got to make sure you're measuring the right things too. We focused on the money. We made a conscious decision. We're not getting all of our leases done. So we're going to get the most valuable leases done or get them done in a way that creates the most value for the, for the government. And that's what we're going to pursue that strategy to go do it. And then we're going to measure to see if we're making progress. So if not, we're going to course correct. And we're going to hold people accountable in the entire chain of command that this is what we're going to accomplish. So aligning that organization, uh, creating visibility where visibility didn't exist and holding people accountable, but empowering them to get the work done too. The most important work done is, is really critical to achieving objectives. And so again, it's know what you want to accomplish, make sure it's the right thing. Uh, focus the energy of the organization and then try and create the conditions where the organization would be successful. That may be outside conditions, it may be changing your processes, your tools, your IP, your people, whatever it might be. Whatever the capability that's lacking, try and create the condition where it's not lacking and then concentrate it on, on the most important, highest value work. It's easier said than done, though. Any, uh, any good stories to share about working at GSA here? <coughs> Congress and how government looks at real estate at all that you could share? Anything amusing or absurd that you saw <laughs> that uh, kind of like, why are we doing this? You know? <laughs> oh boy. Yes, there are stories like that. You probably shouldn't just reveal them all. But you know, the, the challenge with government in general is you're dealing with other people's money. Right. Right. It's not, it's not their money. So the incentives aren't aligned in the right, proper ways. So you need to try and, and approximate the incentives for people to do the right things. Tenant agencies can be the biggest problem because it's not their money, yet they benefit directly from the expenditure of that money, right? They either have an office or a cubicle, or maybe they have a palatial office or a private fitness room, or a private dining room, or whatever it might be, right? Um, that they might want. They don't need it, but they want it, and it's not their money, so, you know, why not? There are, there are more examples like that than, you know, I care to admit. And so the challenge is to, you know, within GSA, is to get them to think about, well, it might not be your money, but it's the taxpayer's money and you got a fiduciary responsibility to make sure it's not wasted. Mm -hmm. And while we have kind of a business model where we have customers and we charge rent and customers always right, we're not a private company. Everything they want, they can't get. That's not okay. And so sometimes agencies ask for things that they should never ask for. And you need to have a hard discussion with them and tell them no. And that's not easy in government. Saving money is a hard thing in government because someone's benefiting from that money. It really is a hard thing. And, you know, I probably wasn't the most popular person <laughs> oftentimes in some agencies when you tell them, sorry, we're not going to do that. I know you've got the money and we've got the authority, but that's not appropriate. And those were tough conversations, not funny, <laughs> um, but, uh, probably funny if you knew all the details from a taxpayer yeah, perspective. <laughs> I can understand. I mean, I've seen some government offices that you ask yourself, wait a minute, was this really done in the 
interests of the federal government or the people? Or was yeah. it just to sort of satisfy someone's ego here? So Yeah, and, and having been on the congressional side where you have oversight and investigations, I'd seen enough of that over 20 years sure. to know what what happens and what goes on sometimes. And that, you know, that shouldn't happen. And Speaker um, of the House has a pretty nice setup. <laughs> they do. You know? Although, you know, I would say Speaker of the House is different. President has a nice setup, too. That's different. That's true. You know, and the Supreme Court. But yeah. does every courthouse need to look like the Supreme Court? I don't think so. No. But that one? Yeah. That's different. But it's, it's uh, those can be challenging sometimes. Understood. So what are your life priorities about family, work, and giving back, Dan? Pretty consistent. When I was at Georgetown, I um, actually just told the story to uh, someone in my office about prioritizing. I told them this story. When I was at Georgetown, I had a post-it note on, on my, my desk, and it was um, school, God, friends, what have you done today? And it was just like a conscious reminder of, again, you can't do 50 things. Well, so what's most important? And those three things I had on that post-it note are still pretty much the, the three things, except it's not school anymore, <laughs> right? Now it's, now it's really kind of service to my work. But th- those are, those are my, my priorities. And uh, that hasn't really changed. The work part certainly takes up most of my time. So in that respect, the prioritizations probably aren't at the right level. But, you know, that's the way it is. You have to work for a living. So obviously work takes a big part of my time, but also in terms of, of charities, that's mostly through my, my parish church. And then also my, my daughter does, uh, she's been doing a, a Leukemia Lymphoma Society fundraising for, um, for years now through school. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's kind of grown into a family enterprise to, to help her with that. And, and they've been doing a great job. And if, if, if you know anyone who's, who's had, cancer you understand just how devastating it can be and it's a really great Absolutely. cause and they, they do tremendous work and so it's it's been, been a real pleasure to help with that and then you know family it's pretty simple <laughs> All right. those three things what, what advice would you give your 25 year old self today dan uh, well, i guess the first thing would be buy more apple stock <laughs> It's probably when I bought okay. my first Apple stock twenty five when I was twenty five. I wish I would have bought uh-huh. more of it. I, I guess I would say, since I don't know if I would change a whole lot, frankly. The, the thing that I would add is, is I probably would have said, uh, put a little more time into relationships. You know, they're they're a hard thing to keep going over time. Your relationships tend to revolve around what you do at a given moment, and then you know you move on in your life and you're doing something else. You have a new circle of relationship. And it's, I, I wish I probably would have put more time and effort in, in keeping those relationships alive over time. I think by nature, I'm, I'm a little bit of an introvert. So it's, it's probably a weakness. It's a harder thing for me to do than maybe some extroverts. But it's, it's really important for a whole variety of reasons. I think about those relationships that I have kept going over decades. You know, there's, there's some of the most important aspects of, 
of, of life today, whether it's friends or colleagues or family. It's really, really important. You appreciate that more as you get older, people mm-hmm. in your lives. So I, I wish I would have. That probably would be my advice. Don't take them for granted. Put, invest in them and make it a priority. Final question. If you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say, Dan? Hmm. I go back to the, the philosophy, right? Great question for a philosophy major. Yeah, I think. <laughs> no, I, I, I try to make it succinct, right? Uh, uh, you know, understand and pursue the good. Right. In, in philosophy, the good has a very specific meaning and concept to it. First, you need to try to understand what it is, mm-hmm. and then you need to, you know, build your life around it. You need to pursue it for yourself, but also for, you know, your community and society. That's really what, what life is about at the end of the day, is pursuing the good. And so understanding is, is helpful. <laughs> and you got to put some time and effort into that, just like you would trying to understand anything else and, and try and, and revolve and, and build your life around it. If, oh, uh, well, once again, succinctly, it's understand and what, what, what was pursue, it again? Understand and pursue the good. The good. That sounds great. Well, Dan... On that note, thank you for your time very much. Excellent responses and really good conversation. I appreciate it very much today. No, thank you for the opportunity. I enjoyed it. We just listened to Dan Matthews from GSA, who will be transitioning to the private sector here literally today, the day that we're releasing this episode. I'm bringing along my associate as usual, Tom. Amos for a little postscript here. Tom, welcome. Hi, John. How are you? Good, good. So what do we have today, Tom? Yeah, so I thought this was a very important podcast in in bringing some of the um, public aspect to to the podcast. I, I thought that was good and great timing on releasing the podcast, like you mentioned, on Inauguration Day at the end of uh, Dan's term. So a couple of things I wanted to talk about. First, you and Dan speak about the 900,000 square foot office space that the SEC office improperly signed that lease for. And he yes. kind of talks a little bit about that. And I just wanted to mention for the listeners that that was the uh, Constitution Center office space that's just south of the mall. That lease was signed in, in 2010. There's obviously a lot of reports and things out there on, on that topic. Yeah, well, um, that building is an interesting building, uh, Tom. When I first moved to Washington back in the 1980s, we had a loan on the prop- that property when it, before it was renovated. At that time, it was the headquarters for the Department of Transportation. It's over a million square foot building. It's, I think it's intent, it was a 100,000 square foot floor plate. So huge floors. <laughs> and so 10, 10 100,000 square foot floor plates on top of each other. Apparently, they did a tremendous job in renovating. I, did, I haven't seen it since it was renovated. And it's interesting that a, a good friend of mine, Nick Pappas, a broker here in town, had that deal on the market. As subject, he was going to sell it subject to that lease being signed. 
And he obviously had to pull the property off the market when that, that lease went south. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting building in a couple aspects of my, my past. So anyway, yeah. keep going. The other topic I wanted to hit today was you guys covered, you know, what's, what's the premium for the government leasing a building versus what, what that value is for the private sector. And so GAO, the government accountability office, they published a report in 2016, which would have been just before Dan's term in office that, that stated that GSA leases exceeded their local market average in private sector for about half of their properties. So they were looking at properties between 2008 and 2014, and that about half of those exceeded the private sector market by about 10%. Dan, in, in, in the recording, he, he mentioned that they're now down 14% below market rates uh, for, for leasing rates. See some progress there from the GSA versus that, that 2016 report. And I thought that it was really interesting to think about and talk about Dan's approach for, for their strategy and what it's been over the course of the past four years of his term and, and, um, and, and how they've been able to do that. He's, uh, you know, working really hard. He was working really hard to try to reduce expenses and reduce rent, obviously, for the leases and reduce the expenses that for operating his buildings to obviously create more value for the, for the taxpayers and uh, his stakeholders, in essence. So he was, able, he was able to reduce the federal footprint of over 3 million square feet in, during his tenure, three years. Yeah. So in essence, either consolidating or letting leases lapse and relocating agencies internally. It's an interesting operation they have because they have to balance so many different uh, stakeholders. They have, <laughs> they have their, their agencies that are their, their tenants, in essence, because they, they act as a, growth, a master tenant for the government on a lot of the government use. The State Department overseas is, is an exception. And there are some agencies within the government that deal, do not, they deal directly with landlords in leasing as opposed to going through GSA. But the bulk of G, uh, federal government leasing is done through GSA. So in essence, they master lease and then they sublease to the agencies. But he said the politics and everything else is get, it gets in the way, and obviously all the approvals for monies he has to get done through Congress and the GAO and different agencies. So it's a very complicated process to to manage it. And he he hits on this, but I, I, I can't imagine the difficulties that surround you know just the location geography, especially here in the the DC market. You've got you know, these, these tenants that are interested in just such specific locations and really kind of limits where they can set up their offices that, that you know, flexibility that you have in the private sector that they, they, they probably just don't have. And um, I, I imagine that that could be a real challenge. They can go where they need to go. So the question is, where do they need to be and why do they need to be there? Mm-hmm. So they have spaces, you know, in DC, it's, Obviously, because the government's here and their proximity to Congress and and all the people they service in this marketplace for the agencies, but they have space. And he said in every every state of the union and all the territories, 
I mean, he talked about a lease that they just did in uh, Saipan, yeah. which is, you know, for but they have facilities, they have 370 million square feet spread in all those jurisdictions around the country and, the, and, and you know, the territories. And the space use varies from data centers, warehouse space, storage, you know, really sparse use to skiff rooms, which are high security, you know, lead penetrating wall type, very expensive finishes to lab space like NIH that's, you know, thousands per square foot just because of the equipment that they have and that's in the space, not the, the physical real estate. So, you know, a lot of the fixtures even that they manage and, and you know, security instrumentation, you know, look at, look at the NSA. Imagine what the costs of that facility are with what all the security aspects that they have. So, I mean, it's, it's trillions of dollars of, of assets that they hit he oversees mm-hmm. when you think about it. Right. Close to you know over a trillion. Yeah, quite so right. it's 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 mind-boggling. Well, that's it for today, John. That's all I got. Great. Well, thank you, Tom, and thank you, listeners. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dan. Uh, highly enlightening. He is uh, now in the open marketplace, looking for opportunities. So, for anybody listening uh, that needs a very good asset manager, I'm sure he'd be willing to talk. So, anyway. So thank you again, and uh, we'll have uh, another conversation in a couple weeks. My guest for that episode will be Jair Lynch, who is a very prominent developer in Washington, D.C. So I, I look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you.